You know, we live in uh, strange times, amen? Yeah. I, I think we all could agree on that. If we can't agree on anything else, we could all at least agree that we're living in some strange times, some interesting days. Um, if you paid attention to the headlines this week, uh, my condolences to you. Uh, it was just crazy things happening in the world. And uh, you read the headlines and you don't know if, if you're reading CNN or if you're reading the Babylon Bee because it, the, the things that are happening in our world are literally stranger than fiction. You, you could not make this stuff up. And we just live in such a, a upside down world, bizarre world. Uh, and what, you know, what do we do in, in times where you know, up is down and, and good is evil and, and evil is good. What do we do in times like these? How do we know what the truth is and where do we go as God's people? And we do what God's people have always done in good and in bad, in, in times where things are prospering and in times where uh, it costs you $100 to fill up your gas tank. We turn to the Word of God. We turn to God's Word. God's Word brings clarity. God's Word cuts through all of the noise. God's Word puts things in proper perspective. God's Word is that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. And so the passage that we're looking at today, um, not in any specific way does it speak to any of the uh, issues facing our world today, but for God's people, what this passage does is it helps us to put things in the right perspective, to, to, to put our lives in, and to put the right priority uh, on the right things, to, to order our lives in the correct order. Because sometimes even for believers, and especially for believers, uh, our lives are um, we, we can find that things are not in the right priority. We, we haven't put things in, in the right order. We've, we've, we've maybe at times placed an emphasis and a focus on things other than Christ and, and, and made that our, our focus, given that our attention. And this passage today helps us to reorient ourselves as God's people to put our attention, to put our focus, to, 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 to draw our life not from the things of this world that are corrupt, that are falling apart, that are in chaos, but to draw our life from the only true source of life, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, we're going to start today. In, cha in chapter 3, in verse 4. Uh, but before we, before we start reading, I, I just want to remind you um, the, the immediate context is, you know, Paul is writing to the Philippians. He had planted this church. Uh, they had sent to him a messenger named Epaphroditus who had brought him an offering. And he, he's sending back this messenger from the Philippian church. Paul, of course, is in jail in Rome, writing from a prison cell. And he's sending, them, he's sending back Epaphroditus with this letter to encourage the Philippian believers. And last week we saw that Paul in the letter had warned them to watch out for false teachers, to watch out for people he called dogs, 
evildoers and people who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about a specific group of false teachers that put the glory in themselves, they, in their own good works, in their own good deeds. And, and he says that we are not like that, but we worship God by the Spirit and we glory in Christ Jesus, this is verse 3, we glory in Christ Jesus as opposed to our own works and works of the flesh, and we put no confidence in the flesh. As God's people, we put no confidence in what we can do. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But with God, all things are possible. And so we, we don't put confidence in our own good works, in our own righteousness, in our own good deeds, but wholly and solely we cling to the work of Christ for us on the cross. And so that's, that's where we left off last week. And continuing in that thought in verse 4, uh, Paul writes, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So Paul says, we don't put our, our glory in the flesh. We put our glory in Christ. We don't put our confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is in Christ. But then he goes on to say, but I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Okay, where, where are you going with this? If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, that's quite a statement. And then he goes on in verse 5 to list his resume, to list his credentials, to, to list his reasons, if he wanted to, to boast in the flesh. And we'll look at these in, in detail after we read through the passage. In verse 5 he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I, might be, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that in our time together, that you would speak to each one of us who is here. Lord, we're here today because you have brought us here. Lord, we're not here for any other reason other than to hear from you, to learn of you, to worship and exalt you, to lift you high. 
Lord, you, as we sang this morning, we need you more than life. That is the truth. Lord, but so oftentimes our, our hearts are drawn away to other things. Lord, I pray through our time in your word that you would help us to live with the right focus, to live with the right zeal and passion, to, to live with the right priorities in our lives. Lord, that where we need to be encouraged, that you would encourage us, where we need to be strengthened in our resolve, that you would strengthen us. Lord, where we need to be corrected, that you would correct us. Lord, even if we need to be disciplined, God, as your children, we ask that you would discipline us and help us, Lord, uh, to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, not to be like everybody else, Lord, not to be like the world, but to, to be those who are filled with a different spirit, with your spirit, and to live in your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is, for me, I think one of the most convicting Bible passages, yet at the same time inspiring as well. And so let, let's, let's go back to verse 4. Let's start walking through this uh, together. He says, verse 3, he says, don't put confidence in the flesh. And then verse 4, he says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, of course, he's contrasting himself with the false teachers that, you know, put their accomplishments on display in front of other people so that other people would be enamored, not with Christ and his work, but enamored with the false teachers and their work. So not that Christ would get the glory, but that these false teachers would get the glory. And so Paul is contrasting his life and ministry of a true apostle with that of a false apostle or false teacher. And so he goes on to say, though, that I have confidence. I, 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 if there's anybody that could have confidence, it could be me. Now, again, he's not doing this to boast in himself, as we see as the passage unfolds, because he wants to show, the reason he's doing this is he wants to show why all of that boasting is totally worthless, why all types of boasting in the flesh and confidence in yourself and in your own accomplishments is not only worthless, but it's also fruitless. It doesn't produce any fruit for Christ or his kingdom. It's also lifeless because it's disconnected from the true source of life. Jesus says we must abide in him and that if we abide in him and his word abides in us that we will bear much fruit. So it is worthless, it is fruitless, it is lifeless because ultimately it is Christless. And so if Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews as he calls himself here, if Paul cannot gain righteousness through his impressive list, through his resume, through the way that he lived his life under the law, if he cannot gain righteousness through his works, what hope do you or I have to attain any sort of right standing before God on our own works? If I compare myself to Paul, I am woefully inadequate in every way. And so if it is on by our works that we are saved, we're all toast. We're all in big trouble. Because we don't even measure up to Paul. And his life doesn't even measure up. His life couldn't even earn 
for himself right standing before God. So Paul holds himself out as an example of the futility of trying to earn your own righteousness, of earning your own right standing before God. It's a futile exercise. It's pointless. And in fact, it's counterintuitive because there is a far greater righteousness to be had. The righteousness that comes through faith. The righteousness of Christ, his work applied to your account. There's a far greater righteousness to be had. And this righteousness is handed out freely by grace through faith. On this list that Paul gives us of, of his resume, he, he includes seven items. Seven things that he once thought would be of some benefit in his standing before God. Let's look at them briefly in detail. The first one he says is that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now this is, of course, in accordance with Old Testament law. Leviticus 12, verse 3, God had told his people that this was the sign of the, the Old Testament covenant and, and a male was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul says, I was, that was done unto me. But salvation is not found in our rituals. This is what Paul is saying here, that, that no matter what your rituals are, whatever way you think through ritual this or that, that you're going to be made right with God. No, we are not saved through ritual. He goes on to say that he was of the nation of Israel. Listen, we're not saved by our race. We're not saved by our race, by our bloodline. That's not how it works. We're all sinners before God, Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not saved by our race. He goes on to zero in closer. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So this, of course, he's saying he was an ethnic Israelite, part of God's chosen people. In, in Paul's day, because of the uh, dispersion, the way that uh, uh, the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians had come in and, and conquered Israel and conquered the nation of Judah and taken them into captivity and only a handful of people had come, in back, come back in the Old Testament. That, that In Paul's day, many people could no longer trace their lineage back to their tribe. Uh, many of the people had intermarried at some point with Gentiles and, and those bloodlines had been, uh, uh, you know, uh, contaminated, if you will. But Paul says, no, I, I can actually trace my heritage back to the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was uh, one of the, there was only two tribes that for a season remained faithful to God when the 10 northern tribes uh, forsook God and did not worship God anymore. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained faithful to God, the two southern tribes. And therefore, it was uh, much longer before they ended up going into captivity because they stayed faithful to God longer, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was also uh, the most loved and, and cherished son of Jacob because Benjamin was the child, the last child that was born to the, of his four wives or his two wives and his two girlfriends. Jacob was quite the colorful character uh, of the four women that he made children with, Rachel was the, was the one he loved. And Benjamin was the last child. She had two, Joseph and Benjamin. 
Benjamin uh, was born to her, uh, and, and, and she died giving birth to him. And so Benjamin was cherished by his father Jacob. And then, of course, we know that the first king of Israel, Saul, was from a, the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, Paul, the apostle, that's his Greek, or that's rather his Roman name. His Jewish name is Saul. He was named after as a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was named after the first king of Israel, Saul. However, we're not saved by what family we are born into. We're not saved by our family. Paul is walking through all of these things that people put confidence in to somehow bolster or boost or prop up their standing before God. We're not made right before God by our rituals, by our race, or the family that we are born into. He goes on to say that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's not only a, a natural descendant of the nation of Israel, of the family of Benjamin, but he kept and observed the traditions of his family, the, the customs of his people, the, the culture and the practices that were handed down to him. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he observed these practices. However, we are not saved or made right before God by our traditions, by our culture, by our practices. He goes on to say that as to the law, God's law, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees held to the the strictest, the most stringent uh, interpretation of God's law. They, they were the most legalistic. They, they held God's word in, in the highest esteem. You, you couldn't be a, a higher in, in that day and age, quote unquote, in, in the eyes of, of, of what a, a man could accomplish in himself. You could not go higher than a Pharisee. However, we're not saved by our religion. We're not saved by our observance of or keeping of the law of God. The sixth, he, he says that he, he not only was a Pharisee, but he was very zealous. And he was so zealous that he even persecuted the church. This is how zealous he was. He, he believed that Jesus was a false teacher. He believed that Jesus was a false messiah. He believed that the resurrection was a made-up story. And so he did what he thought was best was he went around rounding up, persecuting, putting people on trial, believers, even to the point of death. In fact, we're introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 7 when the, the first Christian who was martyred for his faith is being murdered by a, an angry mob. The Apostle Paul is there encouraging the mob in what they are doing. He was a persecutor of the church. Think about how much passion you have to have to do what he did. He was very sincere in his beliefs. However, our sincerity is not what saves us. We can be sincerely wrong. 
And finally, the seventh point he, he gives, he says, as to righteousness other, under the law, I was blameless. Now, Paul here, of course, is not saying that he never sinned. We know that's not the case because he himself calls himself the chief of sinners. But what he is saying is that he had done his best to keep God's law and had done a good as job as anyone else that he knew to keep God's law. So whatever righteousness he could attain under the law, he had attained that. But what he's saying here is that we cannot make ourselves righteous before God through legalism, through keeping the law. And so here he walks through this, this list and he debunks rituals, he debunks race, he debunks family, that we are not saved, salvation is not through tradition, religion, sincerity, or legalism. And in verse 7 he says, but, but, whatever gain I had, all of these things that he could have gloried in and no doubt did glory in before Christ. He, he had a lot of things going for him. His life was headed in a, in a good direction according to his contemporaries, according to, if you will, the world standards. He had a good career mapped out. He, he had it made in Judaism. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he, he mentions this idea three times. Verse 8, he says again, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have counted the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. It's interesting the language he uses here. He uses the language of accounting, of gain and loss, of profit and loss, if you will, of assets and liabilities. And what he's saying is that what I, what I once saw in my asset category, what I once considered in my gain category, in my, my, under the, the profit heading on my balance sheet, was actually ended up becoming to me an obstacle to knowing Christ. And it's the same for all of us. If we are holding on to in any way whatsoever our rituals, our race, our family, our traditions, our religion, our legalism, even our own sincerity, if we in any way think that that will improve our standing before a holy God, we do not understand the gospel. We're holding on to dead religion that cannot save and will not save. These things cannot save us. We cannot save ourselves by our own works and deeds. Indeed, Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
before a righteous and holy God. Anything that we would try to do to improve our standing before him and think that it is somehow effectual actually makes our standing before God worse because it fills us with pride and self-righteousness. Jeremiah 17.5 says that cursed is everyone who puts his trust in the arm of the flesh and turns his heart away from the Lord. Where are you putting your confidence? Is it in yourself? Is it in your own good works and in your own good deeds? Paul had, had certainly accumulated natural success, advancing, moving up the ranks, a bright future ahead of him. But when he saw Christ, when Jesus appeared to him on that day, as he was headed to persecute Christians, when he saw Jesus for who he really was, when he saw that he wasn't a false teacher, when he saw that he wasn't a farce, when he saw that the gospel and the resurrection and the death of Christ and the atonement for sin and and his rising from the dead on the third day in victory, when he saw that it all was true, he forsook it all compared to the riches of Christ. Everything that he had accumulated for himself, thinking that he was advancing himself before God, in a single moment, with one gaze of Christ, it all became dust and ashes to him. It was all worthless compared to Christ. Compared to Christ. Paul was forever changed on that Damascus road. He was a new man. He was a new creation when he saw the Son of God. When he beheld who Jesus really was. When he understood the great truths that he explained earlier in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus humbling himself leaving glory, being born in likeness of human flesh, humbling himself to the will of the Father, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. When he understood that that Christ, his death was, was not just some sort of fluke, it was not just him standing in the way of Rome and Rome crushing him, but when he understood that the cross was the Father laying upon Jesus, his sin... Personally, Paul's sin. And that Jesus had borne Paul's sin and borne Paul's shame and borne Paul's rebellion. Borne even Paul's self-righteousness on his back as as the Bible says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And now here's Jesus ascended, risen from the dead, King of kings and Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of the Father, to, to whom every knee will bow and everyone, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This, this Jesus appears to Paul and speaks to Paul. And, and in that moment, though Paul is blinded with his natural eyes by the glory of Christ, his spiritual eyes are forever open. And he sees that Jesus was not just someone that Rome got crossways with and had crucified, but that Jesus was the Son of God 
and the Savior of the world and the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of all of God's people whom they had been waiting for. Paul was forever changed in that moment when he beheld Christ. And he says that since that time, he has made Christ and knowing him, his singular aim and focus. He wants to know Christ. He wants to be in communion and fellowship with Christ. And so he's willing to leave it all behind. He understood that in that moment, he could not go back to his old life. He, he could not go back to business as usual. He, he could not just go back to the way things were. Things had changed when he met Christ. He forsake everything else to follow God's calling on his life, to pursue him. You know, the, this, this account, it, it reminds me of the story in Mark chapter 10. I want you to flip over there with me quickly, Mark chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, uh, that's the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Mark chapter 10. Hold, hold your place in Philippians because we're going we're gonna to come back to that. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 17 we have this story in it. It contrasts with the story we're reading about in Philippians today. It says, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you've been tracking with me so far, if I've made any point, at least today, it's that there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. We, we cannot keep God's law. We've all broken God's law. We've all sinned and need a Savior. So he's coming to Jesus saying, what do I have to do? What works must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So here, Jesus is, is saying to this young man, do you understand what you're saying? Because I don't think that you do, is what he's saying to this young man. Jesus here is not saying that he is not God, but what he is saying is, are you calling me God? Because there's only one who is good, and that is God alone. And so he goes on in verse 19 to say, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud anyone. Honor your father and mother. So if you've ever watched a, a Ray Comfort video and seen how Ray Comfort evangelizes people, 
This is his method. He uses this method. Because any of us who looked at, at, at this list of things, we would have to say we've at least broken some of these laws. Right? We, we've, I've, I've lied before. I've borne false witness. I've dishonored my father and mother. I've stolen things before. The Bible says that, or Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. I've done that. Jesus said, if you've had hate in your heart towards someone, you've murdered them in your heart. I've done that. If we're being honest here this morning, we've broken all of these commandments. So we are not able to be saved made righteous before God by our law-keeping. We are all not law-keepers. We are law-breakers. And so we stand before God condemned in our sin. But notice the attitude of this young man. Verse 20, and he says to him, Teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Yeah, been there, done that, Jesus. I mean... This man, unfortunately, is so blinded by his self-righteousness that when Jesus uses the law of God for its proper intent to humble the sinner, to, to show us our need for a Savior, to reveal to us our own sinfulness, this man doubles down. He says, I've done all of that. I'm good. I've never lied. I've never cheated. I've never dishonored my father. I mean, he himself is telling a lie right now. <laughs> Jesus looking at him, verse 21, looking at him, it says he loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have Give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What I love about this exchange with Jesus is it shows us that Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth. Jesus loves us enough to reveal to us the idols that are in our heart. This young man was an idolater. Wealth was his idol. Possessions was his idol. Money was his idol. And so Jesus challenges him on where his idolatry lies and he offers to him eternal life because he says, not that we, he will earn his eternal life by selling his possessions, but then he invites him to follow me. That's the key to eternal life. It's only through faith in Christ. It's only through faith in Christ, forsaking everything else. As Paul said three times, Counting it all as loss. Listen, had this man done this, he would have lost nothing and gained everything. 
he went away poor because he did not take Jesus's offer. It's a, it's a tragic tale. It's a sad heart. It's a sad story. It's a heartbreaking story. Uh, some people believe that this uh, rich young ruler, as he is known, was actually uh, the, the later disciple known as John Mark, who eventually wrote down this um, account of Mark's gospel. Because uh, in this account, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so people believe that possibly he's retelling his own story here because there's details here that are not in Luke's gospel when this story is told. And that when he looked into the eyes of Jesus, though Jesus told him something he didn't want to hear, what he saw was the eyes of love and the invitation to come and follow him. And I want you to know, dear friend, this morning that that invitation goes out to everyone who is here today. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what family you were born into, whether it was godly or whether it was godless. It doesn't matter the things that you've done, the sins that you've committed. The offer goes out to all to follow Christ. Going back to Philippians chapter 3, Paul says he's forsaken all things in verse 8 for the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. There are things in this life that are more valuable than gold. There are things that money cannot buy. Knowing Christ is one of those things. You, you cannot purchase your right standing before God. No amount of offerings you put in the offering plate are going to earn your right standing before God. God's not going to get up to heaven and pull up your Destiny Church giving record and say, well, I guess we'll let you in. That's not how it works. It's knowing Christ. It's knowing Christ. On that great day, the, the, the most, I think, haunting verse in all the Bible is the story of those who will stand before Jesus and say, look at all that we did for you. We prayed for the sick and we cast out demons and we prophesied for you. Look at all of our righteous works, Jesus. And Jesus says that on that day, he will say to them, depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. I never knew you. You see, there's a way that you can, quote unquote, serve God for yourself. Not because you love God and not because you love Christ and not because he has become the supreme jewel to you, but because you think that by serving him, you can get something else that you prize more than Jesus. If you are doing that, you are not serving Christ. If you are following Jesus simply as your fire insurance, 
just so that you can escape hell one day, you are not following Christ. You are living in religion. Religion cannot save. It's only knowing Christ, loving Christ. There are so many people today that think that they are Christian, that think they're in a walk with the Lord because they're doing all the right things. But their hearts are so hard and so cold and so far from and so indifferent to their Lord and their Savior. It's dead, dry religion without Christ. Do you know Christ? In chapter 16 of of Matthew, uh, don't take time to turn there. I'm just going to read to you this passage. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The answer, of course, is nothing. Nothing. Now, in the eyes of the world following Christ, it may cost you. It may cost you dearly. You may end up moving some things in your life from the gain column to the loss column. However, for those who know Christ, we know that this is not a loss at all. Whatever we must move to that column, we don't lose. If we gain Christ, we lose nothing and we gain everything. The missionary martyr of last century, Jim Elliott, who who laid down his life to to serve the Aka Indians, who who murdered him and his, his missionary friends as they preached the gospel to them, though they had guns on them, They could have defended themselves. They chose to lay down their lives in a witness to them. This is what he wrote in his diary when, when his wife found his diary and read it later. He wrote this. He is no fool who trades what he cannot keep to purchase that which he can never lose. He is no fool who trades what he cannot keep to purchase that which he can never lose. Listen, friend, you cannot keep your life. You cannot hold on to your life. You cannot even keep the things of this world. If the last two years have taught us anything, it's that our lives can change in a second, in a moment. What we thought was secure, one day we wake up and it's totally obliterated the next day. What we thought was going to be that, you know, tomorrow was going to be like yesterday and everything's just going to kind of continue. Listen, we don't know how much time we have. We don't know. 
But what we do know is that Christ is worth whatever we must sacrifice to know him, to be in fellowship with him, to live for him. Whatever he calls us to do, it is worth it. That is what we know. We need to not put our confidence in the flesh, our confidence in this life, our confidence in ourselves and in our own abilities. We must lay up treasure in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven. Three times in this passage, Paul says he's moved things from the gain category to the loss category. The third time he uses, he says, I've counted them as rubbish. The King James translated that word properly as dung, refuse, sewage. He says, compared to the glories of Christ, whatever the world has to offer me is as sewage. It is worthless, something to get rid of. And when it's gone, there is no loss at all compared to knowing Christ. Notice in verse 8 that he says, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, my Lord. Undoubtedly, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Let there be no mistake of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord, singular, but the question that you must answer and that all of us must answer here today is not whether or not he is the Lord, but whether or not he is your Lord. Is he your Lord? Well, I grew up in a Christian family. It doesn't count. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Hold your Christian family against that. Well, I come to church, don't I? Don't I? Listen, coming to church is a great thing. But it's not about coming to church. If that's all you ever do, you'll just be a Pharisee. And not as good a one as Paul was. I guarantee you that. Well, I've been baptized. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, I take communion. Listen, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he kept all of the rituals. It's not about any of those things. It's about whether or not you are in Christ. Put your faith and your hope and your trust, all of it, all of it, in his work for you on the cross. Rid yourself of any idea that you contribute anything to your salvation. Rid yourself of any idea that you are somehow in any way making yourself right before God. It's only the cross. It's only the blood of Jesus. And is he your Lord? Not the Lord. Is he your Lord? You don't get in to the family of God on your own merits, no matter how good your resume. Without Christ, we are, we are in sin. We are dead in our sin. We are totally unable to do anything before God. It's only in Christ. It's only in Christ. Paul says, I suffer the loss of all things. I've, I've thrown it all away to follow Christ. So let me ask you a question. What are you unwilling to lose for the sake of Christ? What are you unwilling to lay down to follow Jesus? What have you not surrendered to Christ? If you're holding on to anything, you have made it an idol in your life. An idol. 
What are you unwilling to surrender to him? Unwilling to surrender to his lordship? Unwilling to lose? If I'm holding on to anything that he is asking me to turn into his hand, then it has become an idol. What about distractions? Things that take our attention and our focus off of Christ. Oh, I, I think we could all be convicted of that. Amen? Amen. Allowing the trivial, allowing the temporary, allowing the, the transient, allowing the things that are here today and will be gone tomorrow. The Bible says this life is like a vapor. Allowing those things to cloud our vision, to cloud our judgment, to, to take our focus off of the true, off of the real, off of the eternal, off of Christ. Whatever we do, we should do all for the glory of Christ. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't go into work tomorrow, but I'm telling you that when you do, you should do it for Jesus. That all of life should be lived out to bring him glory and to bring him praise and to, to be used to honor and to glorify him. That everything should be connected to Christ and to following him. So that means on the job site tomorrow that you're, you're living for Christ. You're working for Christ. You've submitted all to Christ. The staying at home mom tomorrow that is changing the diaper and doing the dishes and all of the, the mundane things. You're not just doing those things because they have to be done. No, but you're doing them in service of your family to raise up godly children who love and serve Christ. You're doing it for the glory of Christ. Every day we wake up, we should wake up and say, today I'm living for Christ. I'm counting everything else as loss and I'm living for Christ. Yes, I'm going to work. Yes, I'll be a good steward. Yes, I got to do some things but I'm doing them as unto the Lord. And if you can't do it as unto the Lord, then you ought not do it. If you can't figure out how to connect it to serving God, then maybe, maybe you ought to prayerfully consider if this is a distraction that's taking your attention off of Christ. What this does is this brings dignity to our work, whatever our vocation, whatever our station in life, because we do it for him. We do it as unto him. In verse 10, he says, that I may know him, that I may know Christ. You see, holding on to these things and, 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 and getting them out of alignment with our priorities of serving Christ, I'm not telling you that you have to, as Jesus said to the young man, sell everything and, and, and go and follow him. That, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is, is it out of alignment? Are the priorities off? And we, when we hold on to these other things, they block intimacy and fellowship with Christ. The goal is knowing Christ, not knowing of Christ. But do you know Christ? It should be amazing to us that we can know him. That he offers himself to us. That he, he invites us into a relationship with himself. The supreme being in all of the universe. Think about the people that you may put on a pedestal. Whoever it is that you might be honored to go and share a meal with one day. Christ offers us himself. To know him. To know him. Not just know of him, but to fellowship with him. King of kings and Lord of lords. To sit at his table. To be a part of his family. 
But when we put our confidence in our flesh, when we glory in ourselves, this is a blockade, this is a hurdle, this is a stumbling block to fellowship and intimacy with Christ. And when you know Christ, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. When you know Christ, you all will also experience his power in your life. Notice he says that I may know him, speaking of presently, and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection right now. He's not talking about the future one day, a resurrection. He gets around to that in verse 11. Right now he's talking about the power of the resurrection in our life today. His resurrection in your power in your life today. The Bible says, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will give life, he will quicken, he will strengthen even our mortal bodies. God's power today, his resurrection power in your life today. That means victory over our past, victory over sin, victory over bondage, victory over addiction, Victory over how we feel towards a certain group of people. Victory over how we feel towards that individual because of what they did to us. We don't have to live in bondage to these things. Victory over the flesh. Victory over condemnation of the enemy. But how do we experience this victory? Only through knowing Christ. Only through fellowship and intimacy with him. Verse 11, he says that by any means I suffer the loss of all things, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What Paul is saying is that whatever I have to go through on this journey to eternity, so be it. Whatever it is, whatever path the Lord has for me, Whatever I must suffer, even Paul saying, if I must lay down my own life, I will suffer to be like Christ, so be it, because my relationship with Christ is worth everything. I'm not going to allow anything to compromise my fellowship and communion with Christ. Even if it is my very life, he says, I lay it, de- I lay it down gladly for the sake of knowing Christ. So the question is, do we know that Jesus? Do we have fellowship with that Jesus? The one that's worth suffering for. The one that's worth counting everything as lost for. The one that's worth even dying for. Do you know that Jesus? Listen, we're not all called to be an apostle like Paul. We're not all called to be beaten and shipwrecked. Can I get a thank you Jesus on that? Amen. But we are all called to follow Christ. And to follow Christ, it means that he must be first. He must be foremost. That there's no other way for it to be. Because he is first. He is foremost. He is the son of God. So to say I follow him, but he's like third or fourth or fifth or even second on my list. It's an oxymoron. It it doesn't make sense. We're not all called to, to suffer as Paul did, but we are all called to follow Christ and to put him first. And listen, that's going to look different for every single person in here. 
Stop comparing yourself with other people. Well, they're doing this and they're doing that and they're doing... No! Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is God asking you to lay down? What is God asking you to put on the altar? Whatever it is, trust me, you will be only the richer when you lay it down for the sake of Christ. Put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in your own abilities. Put no confidence in what you can do for your right standing before God. Our confidence is solely and fully in him. Have you considered all things as lost for the sake of Christ? I haven't put a whole lot of application points in here today because this is going to look different for every single one of us. But we need to, you, what we all need to do is do business with God today. Lord, is there any area, any person, anything in my life that is taking your place? Repent of that today. Call on Christ today. Bring that to the altar today. Lay it down today at his feet. It's not that you're going to lose it. You lose nothing when you lay anything down at Jesus' feet. Most likely it's something that's just out of order, out of balance, in the wrong place. Put Jesus first. And let me encourage all of us here today to make the apostles' words our prayer that I may know him that I may know him and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When we come to the communion table today, this is what we are professing, that he is first that he is foremost, that he is preeminent. We come and we confess before him that we are oftentimes weak in our flesh, and so we put no confidence in our flesh, amen? But we come to the table saying, all of my confidence is in Christ. All of my confidence is in you, Lord, in your work for me.